you have your Bibles, why don't we go to Luke's Gospel? We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke together. We're in the middle of chapter 22 at this time. And if you need a Bible while we're turning to Luke 22, just hold your hand up and the guys in the aisles have a few copies. Last week we went down as far as verse 13 this morning. And interestingly enough, we just move through the Word of God verse by verse and kind of don't plan out where we land when we do. And pretty interesting that this morning we find ourselves looking at the Passover, which is exactly uh, what's being celebrated. Uh, this is Passover week, this next upcoming week. It's just kind of very fitting and interesting the way the Holy Spirit orchestrated that, that we would land here this morning. But this morning we're going to pick up there in verse 14 and go down as far as verse 23. And as we do, would you stand together with me out of respect for the Word of God as I read our passage of Scripture? Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, regarding Jesus and the disciples, it tells us, And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. And Father, we ask for just the help of your Holy Spirit now as always to just understand every thought and intent and your heart's desire behind this portion of Holy Scripture that we hold in our hands this morning. We recognize, Lord, that you breathed out your word by your spirit. It's unlike anything else, Lord, that we could ever read and print. And Lord, so we ask that you would take the word of God and by its power and its living dynamic that you would speak personally into each one of our hearts, that, Lord, like a hammer breaking through rock and like a fire that would just cause our hearts to, Lord, burn with greater passion and understanding of you and a desire to live for you. We pray, use your word in each of our lives this morning. Prepare us, Lord, according to how we each need to be prepared this day and speak personally and powerfully into each one of our lives through your Spirit's ministry. We ask believing that's what you want to do and will in Jesus' wonderful name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, a memento is basically a reminder of the past. And if you have a little souvenir or memento, these kind of things, you know that's exactly the intended purpose of it. Basically, the intention of a memento is basically sort of to provoke memories. And that little symbol or souvenir or memento or piece of jewelry, whatever it is, uh, the whole purpose of that is to provoke a memory to come back to your mind to, to think about something, to get you to focus on something. And God, it seems in the Bible, desires for us to continually and constantly be reminded of His incredible love that He has for us. And God wants us to continually be reminded of His work in our lives and knowing, if you're anything like me, the poor memories that we all have, God has given to us ways whereby our memories might be provoked and we might be reminded and, and sort of he's instituted, if you notice in the word of God, ways to refresh and to renew our memories and our awareness of his love and his work in our lives. For Israel, it's very obvious in the Old Testament, God instituted for them the feasts, 
the celebrations that they would uh, enjoy together, whether it was Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles. God gave them feasts and celebrations and ways whereby they might be again reminded of God's love and his faithfulness and his work in their lives. And in the same way for the church, Jesus has given to you and I communion. He's given to us the Lord's Supper. He's given to us something that we can celebrate as his people in order to be reminded and refreshed about the reality of what Jesus has done for us. It seems to me that Jesus desires, by the very institution of communion, he desires for us to be reminded of our sinfulness and of his powerful salvation on our behalf. And because of that, we have here the written record of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And let me just say this as we look at a passage about communion or the Lord's Supper. Please, please understand and know that the value and the power is not in the elements themselves. Unfortunately, there are certain parts and portions of what calls itself the church and the body of Christ where the idea has been conveyed that the elements themselves, the bread, the cup, the actual emblems and, emblems and symbols themselves somehow in themselves have power or have some kind of value whereby they can convey life or convey spiritual power. Many call this transubstantiation which basically is a teaching that the bread itself somehow actually becomes the literal body and flesh of Jesus Christ himself. And, and that the cup uh, and the wine or the grape juice, whatever you mean, it literally miraculously becomes the literal blood of Jesus Christ all over again being shed. And that as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, that actually there's an impartation of literally eating the body of Christ and receiving the literal blood of Christ into your life. And listen, the danger of that is really that runs counter-scriptural to what the Word of God teaches us, that Jesus was sacrificed once for all. That what Jesus did on the cross, he said, it is finished. The book of Hebrews repeatedly teaches us once for all. Jesus died and suffered once for all. So to say that as we distribute the elements of communion, that literally the body of Christ is being sacrificed afresh and his blood is being shed afresh again, we need to recognize the danger in that is really we're beginning to convey an idea that is not scriptural. And this must be the authority. What the Word of God says must be ultimately what we go by and we need to be careful because then we begin to convey the idea to people that you can live however you want and do whatever you want, but if you just eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, everything is okay. And then everything becomes dependent upon the receiving somehow of the value in elements themselves rather than receiving the value of Jesus himself and what Jesus did for us. Spurgeon said the elements of communion should be looked at as a pair of spectacles or lenses. In other words, it is through the elements themselves that we see through the elements and we see Jesus Christ. The true value is in the memory and the meaningful thoughts that they provoke in us as we celebrate humbly and reverently what they represent. The body of Jesus. Listen, when Jesus here is giving the elements of communion, he's saying, this is my body broken for you. His, he wasn't giving them his literal flesh. What was he giving them? Bread. And when he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. He wasn't literally pouring out the blood of his veins. into. It was a symbol. Jesus himself indicated they were symbols. They were elements to cause us to reflect and to remember upon the preciousness of what Jesus has done. And I just say that as we look at a passage of communion because it's important to realize the value and power, it's not in the actual physical elements. The value is in the memory and the thoughts and the reminders that they provoke within us to appreciate Jesus and to commune with Jesus and to remember who he is and what he's done for us. Now the background, remember, within this point of Luke's gospel, we're in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. 
within the last 24 hours before his suffering and his death and crucifixion. That's where we're at. And we know in the recent passage we looked at, at this point in the prior section, Judas, one of the 12, has done what? He just went out and made plans to betray Jesus to the religious leaders that they might kill him. So that's just happened. Judas, Judas has just gone and made plans to betray Jesus. In the same way, Peter and John were told in the prior section, they just were sent by Jesus to go make preparations to celebrate the Passover meal in the upper room of a place where Jesus had designated that to be shared with his disciples. So it's with that background in verse 14. Again, the end of verse 13 tells us they went and prepared the Passover in that upper room. And verse 14, we pick it up. It says, and when the hour had come, the hour to celebrate the meal, Jesus sat down and notice the apostles sat down with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So as had happened in prior years of Jesus' life as a Jewish man and with the disciples he had been with the past three plus years, once again here as they annually did, they find themselves sitting down to share and celebrate the Passover meal together as God commanded them to. And again, we need to remember, as we said last week, the Passover celebration was probably one of the most important celebrations among the Jews. It commemorated God's deliverance of Israel out of the land of Egypt where they were in bondage and slavery. And as they celebrated Passover, it was a time for them to remember how God heard their cries when they were in miserable slavery and bondage. And how they cried out to God to get them out of the condition that they were in that was so miserable. And it was a condition of slavery. And how God heard their cry and compassionately and lovingly raised up and sent a deliverer to them to set them free and to bring them out into a good and an abundant land instead. Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, God told Moses this, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you from an, with an outstretched arm with great judgments, and I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians." So we know from the account as we read in the Old Testament exactly what happened. God promised his deliverance and then that very night that the Lord was about to bring his final judgment upon Egypt. Remember the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. The death angel was going to come through the land of Egypt and every firstborn male was going to suffer death. And God's judgment and wrath was about to go through the land. And what did God do? God spoke to the children of Israel and he said, Look, I want to give you a means to escape my coming wrath. And here's what you do. I want you to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb with no defects in it, pure and spotless. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to apply it to the doorposts and the lentils of your home. And the purpose of it was so that they could escape the coming wrath because as the death angel would go through, it was the blood applied over their homes that identified to God that they believed in his word and they wanted to be identified as his children. And so the wrath of God passed over every place where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was applied in an act of faith and obedience to God. Again, Exodus 12 tells us this in verse 13 and 14. God says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, God was saying, when I see the blood of the lamb, it will be a protective covering to you. Look, though God loved his people, they were sinful just like everybody else. And we need to remember that. They were sinful just like the Egyptians. And God was giving them a way to escape the wrath of God. And that blood was the protective covering. And of course, you begin to see how this is a fitting picture of Jesus. 
that the blood of Jesus is the protective covering over my life as I believe in him as the Lamb of God. The blood of Jesus is what protects me so that God's wrath that I deserve for my sinfulness can pass over my life. doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'm a failure just like everyone else by far. But it's the blood of Jesus over my life that God sees and he says, okay, that is a protective covering. So I'll let my wrath pass over you because of the blood that has been applied upon your life through faith in my son. So God says, Exodus 12, this shall be a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations and keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So it was an annual celebration God instituted whereby they would remember every year on the first month, it says, of the year, the Jewish people were to take a lamb. It had to be unblemished, no defects, no spots. And then on the set day, the 14th day of that first month, that Passover lamb was sacrificed. It was put to death. Its blood was drained out, and then they would enjoy eating that roasted lamb and that meal together as they remembered what God had done for them. And the Passover meal, really, it was an elaborate ceremony. The Seder, as some call it even today, it involved a lot of different elements. It wasn't just a lamb. There were different components to the meal, things that they would do. There was bread and bitter herbs and salt water that reminded of their bitter uh, tears that they cried there in Egypt. There was the uh, you know, drinking of multiple different symbolic cups, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And there was the reciting of the Passover events between the youngest son in the house and the father or the man of the house who would lead the Passover meal as a spiritual leader for his home. And then they would sing the Psalms from 115 to 118. And it was all an elaborate celebration, again, to provoke their memories and to give them a fresh appreciation for what God did for them. That again, they would freshly appreciate, oh Lord, thank you so much for what you did for us and how you delivered us in the way that you did. Now Jesus and his disciples, being all Jewish men, they had gathered many times before and celebrated the Passover. And no doubt in prior years they had shared it. And yet now somehow, verse 14 tells us here in Luke's gospel that when the hour came this time to celebrate the Passover meal, notice Jesus leading the meal among the disciples. He now, it seems in verse 15, expresses his heart in a real meaningful and sincere manner. And he says to them with fervent desire, I've desired to eat, take notice, this Passover with fervent desire, I've been looking forward to eating this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus says to them, look, I have been longing. I've been waiting year after year, all of my life and all the three years that we've been together and we've celebrated this. I have been waiting to celebrate, notice the language, this Passover. See, I think every time Jesus celebrated Passover, it no doubt had tremendous meaning to him. Not just because of what had happened in the past, but because Jesus knew what that Passover celebration really ultimately portrayed in regards to his own personal life as the Son of God who had come in to save the world from its sin. Again, the Bible tells us, as well as Jesus knew, that all the Old Testament feasts in Israel, all those things really, they foreshadowed aspects of the life of Jesus Christ. Everything that they celebrated, each feast, it all somehow pointed to the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, his redemptive work, and Passover, just like everyone, it was a picture. It was a literal celebration, but it also foreshadowed who Jesus was, things about Jesus and his ministry as he came. So as they celebrated this, Jesus says, oh, I have so longed to eat this particular Passover. Why? Because he knew that this Passover he was going to become the fulfillment of it personally. As he himself would step in, notice he says, I desire to eat this Passover, he says, verse 15, before I suffer. Because Jesus knew what was on the horizon in a matter of a few hours, as I said, as he would become the Lamb of God who takes away once for all the sin of the world. See, in the same way that Israel was in bondage and slavery in Egypt, you and I, the Bible teaches, by nature, are all sinful. 
We're born sinful by nature. We all are prone to make, we just prove out our sinfulness. We're prone to make mistakes. Our natural inclination is to do what's wrong. The Bible teaches that. It's the way that we're born. We're born sinful. And the Bible says that whoever sins then becomes a slave to sin. That sin begins to control our life. And it dominates our life. And we need to be rescued. We need to be set free. And the longer we walk with the Lord, or, or the longer, excuse me, prior to the time before I walked with the Lord, the older I got, I got saved right after I graduated high school. But it was interesting, out of those first, you know, 17, 18 years, the older I got, the more I realized that I was getting sick and tired of being sick and tired of realizing that I was kind of, I was a slave to who I was and the way that I had to live and the things that I didn't like about myself of my own sinful tendencies inside and things I did that I knew were wrong and I regretted doing them, but I kept doing them because I was in bondage. I was a slave to my sinful tendencies as the Bible taught and I needed somebody to come rescue me. And see, this is what God did for us. The Bible tells us that God loved us. He sees us in that condition. He saw the world in that sinful condition and what did he do? He sent to us his son, the unblemished sinless son of God who came and he took the wrath and the penalty and he was sacrificed and his blood was shed and now if we go to Jesus realizing who he is the lamb of God his blood can be applied in a sense to our lives like them in the Passover so that the wrath of God passes over me and the judgment of God can pass over your life though you're a sinful person like everyone else because God sees the blood and he says therefore I'll pass over you in judgment because of the blood of my son that was sacrificed for you. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, very important verse says this, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Jesus became the literal Passover lamb of God to fulfill what this all represented. Well, look with me in verse 16. Jesus goes on to say, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So as Jesus is celebrating Passover, at this point in the meal, I can't wait to eat this. I fervently look forward to this particular Passover. He then inserts this thought here where he says, And listen, I will no longer partake of these things, he says, until they have their culmination, their fulfillment, the ideas in the kingdom of God and we celebrate them again. Now, first of all, no doubt Jesus is saying that I won't partake of these things again with you until the kingdom of God because Jesus knew he was about to die in a matter of a few hours. And he would die and then three days later he would raise from the dead and he would ascend back into heaven to be back at the right hand of the Father, which is where he had been for all of eternity before he entered into our world as a man to save us from sin. So we know I'm not going to be with you next year at Passover. I won't celebrate this again until we celebrate it together in the kingdom of God. As well as the fact, I think Jesus understood that it's once the kingdom of God finally comes that then really believers will be completely, fully delivered, in a sense, from every part of sin. See, when we come to Jesus, we're forgiven and delivered from the penalty of our sin. But I'm still struggling with the power of sin. And I'm still frustrated in this world with the presence of sin. So though the penalty of sin has passed over and gone away, Jesus knows it's not till the kingdom of God that ultimately the full deliverance of my people will come to pass when you are then freed from the power of sin and the presence of sin as you enter into the kingdom of God and we spend forever with the Lord and as Jesus speaks of eating and drinking these things in the kingdom of God then he could be referring to Revelation 19 the marriage supper of the lamb as we enter in to the eternal dimension and celebrate that together with Jesus there's this marriage supper Revelation 19 speaks about where we celebrate what Jesus has done for us together with him as his followers or it could be a reference maybe even to celebrating the feast itself during the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ often as well called the kingdom of God because the Bible does seem to teach that there will be the uh, celebration of some of the feasts during that time if you study 
the time of the millennium in your Bible. But here we see Jesus. He's beginning to go through the elements of the Passover Supper. Now, verse 17, it seems we find Jesus now beginning to work through these various components of the meal. It says, verse 17, he took the cup, and that would be the first cup, the first of four cups that they would celebrate. He took the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this cup and divide it among yourselves. Again, in the typical Passover, they drank four different cups. Some would be cups they actually drank and indulged. Other cups were representative, but they, it seems, wouldn't drink them together as a group. And each one of these four cups was related to a part of the statement from Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7 that I read earlier. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. And it went with the statement from Exodus 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will sanctify you and set you apart. I'll bring you out. That cup was wine mixed together with water, warm water. During it, a blessing was pronounced. And everyone, as you see in verse 17 here, drank of that cup. It's also the time in the meal when they dip the bitter herbs into the salt water to remember their bondage and tears and the misery of Egypt. The second cup in the Passover celebration was called the cup of plagues. And that cup of plagues went with the statement where God said, I will rescue you with great judgments. And we know all the different plagues God brought on Egypt as he was rescuing his people. It seems that they didn't drink this cup together because it represented the plagues and the misery that God brought as he was delivering them out. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. Uh, and that went together with the statement where God in Exodus 6 said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And according to Jewish tradition, this was the most important of the four cups because it represented the blood of that innocent lamb that was shed and sacrificed so that God's wrath would pass over them and that they might become identified as God's purchased people belonging to him. And then the fourth cup was often called the cup of praise or the cup of acceptance. And it went along with Exodus 6 statement where God said, I will take you out as my people and I will be your God. And at the end of the fourth cup is when they would sing Psalms 115 to 118. Now verse 17 seems to speak of the first cup. The first cup, the cup of sanctification as they would take it, Jesus would pronounce a blessing, he would pass around the cup, everyone would drink from it. It seems in the gospel accounts we have no mention anything of the second cup, the cup of plagues, again because they didn't drink from that. And it seems then between the third and the fourth cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus then institutes something new out of this Passover meal. He institutes what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. If you look with me in verse 19, we begin to see that happening now. It says, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and said to them, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So we find Jesus now in the 19th and 20th verse sort of transitioning this Passover meal and instituting something new for his disciples, ultimately for the church, what we call communion or celebrating the Lord's Supper. And of course, the two simple elements, much more simple than the Passover meal, the two simple elements of the Lord's Supper or communion is the bread and the cup. We see the element of the bread being spoken of there in verse 19 as Jesus takes it and it says he prays a blessing over it. He then breaks it in the presence of his disciples and normally, at this point in the Passover meal, normally when that bread was broken, and it was handed and distributed to people during the Passover meal. Typically, the broken bread in Passover, when they broke it, they would declare this, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate in Egypt, and let all who are hungry enter and eat thereof. But take notice here in verse 19, this time during this Passover, Jesus breaks the bread, as he typically did, but this time as he breaks the bread, it tells us that he hands it to his disciples and he doesn't say this is the bread of affliction. He hands them the bread and he says to them instead, this is my body given for you. 
and do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of what you experience in Egypt. This, this is not the bread of affliction. This is my body, which will be broken for you. And I want you to do this when you partake of the bread, Jesus says, remembering me. He says, when you eat this broken bread now, he's telling the disciples, I want you to remember my life. I want you to remember the love of God for you shown in the fact that I came to this earth as the Son of God and I let my body be broken and I let my flesh be beaten and tortured so that I could sacrificially absorb all the wrath of God against the sin of humanity that existed and I could let my body be broken and punished substitutionally so that because I justly satisfied the judgment against sin, God's wrath can pass over you now. And when you eat the broken bread, he says, I want you to remember the fact of what I endured and suffered. The bread was to symbolize the sufferings of Jesus and what he as a man embraced for you and I and endured for us as he let his body be broken. So that broken bread, it symbolically reminds us of the sufferings of Jesus because of the great love of Jesus for you and for me. How Jesus let himself be beaten and punished and, and shamefully treated. How he let himself be whipped and scourged. How he allowed himself to be pinned to the cross and be crucified and undergo the most torturous, painful form of capital punishment. Isaiah tells us in chapter 50, the words of Jesus, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 53, by, by his wounds we are healed. It tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. That the chastisement for our peace was put upon him. And listen, he had the same nerve endings. He had the same pain sensations and everything Jesus went through, he went through it to embrace and absorb the wrath of God. Why? So that I didn't have to embrace it. The one who didn't deserve it took it for me. He stepped into my place. He stepped into your place. And he says, listen, when you eat that broken bread, stop and think about that. Remember how much I love you that I would allow that to happen to me so that you could be off the hook. And it's to remind us of the depths of the love of God. The Bible tells us in John 15 that Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And as we partake of the broken bread, we're to let it stimulate our memory to the love of God and the suffering of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And in verse 20, we see the other element, the cup. It says that Jesus took that cup after supper, which would indicate probably, as I said, the third cup, this is the cup of redemption, how fitting that that's the cup that he takes. And he says, however, changing this cup, he says, is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So Jesus says, now when you drink this cup, this cup of redemption, he says, I want you to think about how just like that sacrificial lamb that shed its blood so that God's wrath passed over you, I want you now to drink this cup and remember that my blood, my blood is the Lamb of God was shed so that you could be forgiven no matter what you've done. That no matter the extent of your failure, you can be free and you can be cleansed and you can be forgiven because of my blood that was shed. Leviticus 17, God declared, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, listen, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Hebrews chapter 9 says, According to the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Listen, God's a holy God. And because He's a holy God and He's the one, it's His creation that we sinned against, He has the right to determine how forgiveness works. And God said, forgiveness works this way. I have given blood to make atonement for souls. It's what God picked. I can't explain it. It's just the way that God intended it. But the Jews understood it, and we must recognize it, that it's without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And God instituted that. Peter, who was with Jesus, later writes regarding Jesus' blood being shed, 
1 Peter 1.19, he says, We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And as Jesus takes this cup that day, it says there in verse 20, that as he did this, he was ratifying, notice it says, a new covenant. God says, I'm making a new arrangement. I'm making a new commitment to you, a new, a new way for you to relate to me. See, the old covenant, what was that based on? The old covenant was based on their observance to the law of God. And they're keeping the law of God. That was a part of the old covenant. The law was given not just for something to keep moral consistency in the society, but the law was also given so that man would realize God's holy standard. And as soon as they tried to start keeping a law, guess what they found out real quick? We can't keep this. This standard's too high. And we keep failing. And the law was intended to be like a mirror to reveal to them their sinfulness. Think about it. As soon as God gave the standards of the law, what did he do right afterwards? Instituted the sacrificial system. <laughs> so God says, here's the standard. And because you can't keep it, Here's how you get forgiveness every time you fail and you break the law. So the law was not intended to make them right with God. Again, if we could keep laws and be right with God, then why would God send his son to endure what he did? The Bible says if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If we could do something, jump through a few golden hoops and attend church so many times a week and give so much money to the poor and somehow God says, okay, you weighed out the balances, I'll let you in. Why would God send his son to do what he did? There's one reason God sent his son, because there's nothing that anyone can do to meet the standards of God's holiness as sinful people. But the Old Testament law was based upon their beginning to come to this recognition that we keep failing what the law of God says and it was intended to provoke them to say, we need to get saved. God, we need you to send us a savior because we can't complete what your law says. And every time they failed, what did they have to do? God gave them a way to temporarily appease his wrath. They had to sacrifice an infant substitute and they had to take that blood and put it upon the altar and that temporarily appeased the wrath of God so that they could stay in fellowship with God. And every time they failed, blood had to be shed. They failed, blood had to be shed. God was allowing them to begin to recognize. Yet the Old Testament says in Jeremiah 31 that God said, one day I'm going to bring a new covenant. And Jesus here speaks of this new covenant that he himself established. And the new covenant, listen, it's established by Jesus and it's not based on man's performance. It's not based on keeping laws. It's based on realizing that Jesus came into this world fully God and fully man to connect God and man. Jesus lived the righteous requirements of the law that you and I can't. He lived it out perfect, perfectly. And then he said, okay, now I have connection with the perfection of heaven and I'm in touch with the weakness of humanity. I did it for them, Father, as a man. That's just. God's a just God. And now, Father, I'll step in and be their substitute. Not only did I live it out sinlessly, but I'll also step in and take the punishment for them sacrificially. And Jesus' finished work on the cross satisfied once for all everything necessary that God needed to be satisfied in his judgment against wickedness and sinfulness in all of our lives. And Jesus' blood makes this new covenant relationship available between God and man where we approach God, the Bible says, by grace, undeservedly as sinners, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus simply meant when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever works really hard for him won't perish, but have everlasting... No, whoever believes believes on him won't perish but have everlasting life the new covenant is based on what jesus did and the fact that jesus didn't just cover our sin temporarily like sacrificial animals blood did but jesus's blood removes sin it removes it once from all again if you want to further study hebrews 8 through 10 really gives a further teaching on this reality of how the blood and bulls of goats they were just temporary Listen to what Hebrews 9 says. It says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
Later on it says in the chapter there, it says that Jesus himself once at the end of the ages has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, this is why Revelation 1.5 tells us that Jesus has washed us from our sins in his own blood. 1 John 1.7 tells us the blood of Jesus Christ, listen, cleanses us from all sin. It does not matter what you have done in your past. Jesus' blood can cleanse and forgive all of that. Every ounce of guilt and every stain. It does not matter where you've been failing and what you've been messing up with presently. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It does not matter if you make a horrible mistake down the road in the future. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What matters is do you believe the reality of your own sinfulness and not deserving to go to heaven? And do you accept the fact that only the blood of Jesus can make you acceptable before a holy God and that you must approach God on that basis. You must receive the forgiveness and communion. That cup, Jesus says it's a new covenant. As we partake of it, it reminds us that God is offering a new relationship through his son's work. And it's not based on you and I working hard to be good and stay right with God. It's based on us saying, thank you, Jesus, that you did what you did so that I can trust that because of what you did, that is my ticket because I know you to have access and acceptance before a holy Father in heaven. And notice regarding communion, two important things Jesus states here. In his words, do you see his words? Verse uh, 16, excuse me, verse 19, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Take note of two very quick things here. Jesus says, first of all, two words, do this. What do you think he meant by that? I think he meant we're supposed to share communion. <laughs> I think he meant we're supposed to observe communion. It's a part of our Christian life. It's something intended for the body of Christ. We are supposed to do it. It's something that we're supposed to participate in because God says it's a part of your spiritual relationship with me that's a meaningful experience that you need as you stumble and fail and struggle with your past sins and deal with your present struggles to again be able to remember, oh Lord, thank you so much that it's not based on my performance because I've blown it so bad and I keep blowing it, but Lord, what you did, thank you so much. And we appreciate afresh what he did. It's important to participate in it as the body of Christ. And Jesus says, when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. We're not remembering just an event. We're not doing some liturgical religious observation that's meaningless. We're remembering an important person. We're communing with Jesus. And we're remembering Jesus in that moment and thinking about him as our own Savior and who he is and what he means to us. Look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus then makes this startling statement. He says, but behold, right in the midst of this supper, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So as they're sharing this meaningful Passover meal, Jesus all of a sudden reveals this startling truth that somebody in that room was going to betray him. Now, the very fact that these 13 men, Jesus and his disciples, are together sharing this meal indicates there's an incredibly close family unit and connection among them. We need to remember, the Passover meal and that celebration, it was kind of like us maybe at Christmas or Thanksgiving when you know, the family and loved ones, they'd assemble together and celebrate this. And the fact that these 13 men are celebrating this together indicates they have very close bonds. Remember, these 12 guys, they had left everything and had been following Jesus for three years they did everything together. They became loyal. They had a camaraderie. They supported one another and they stood by Jesus and Jesus stood by them and, and there was this bond and this camaraderie that existed among these 12 men. So can you imagine with that camaraderie all of a sudden the emotional bombshell that went off in that room when Jesus said, one of you in this room is going to betray me. You're going to betray the Son of Man. 
how that must have like an explosion of emotion in that room startled and shocked everyone to the core to hear that. Jesus says, however, in verse 22, that it was known and predicted all along. He says it will happen just as it's been determined. Again, Psalm 41.9, Jesus, uh, speaking of Jesus, says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It had been predicted. Jesus wasn't shocked by it. But yet at the same way, balancing that out, Jesus knew this painful betrayal would happen to him regarding someone who was very close to him, that he would be wounded in this way. Yet, notice in verse 22, he also in balance shows not just God's sovereignty, but man's personal responsibility, because he declares that the decision to make this betrayal was still a personal choice, who the individual was accountable for doing. He says, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe to that man. Jesus says, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed betrayed now you almost sense here jesus it's almost like in love he's seeking to warn judas in an indirect way without even humiliating the guy i mean he says these things generically but not specifically right to judas he knows everything going on and it's almost as if i sense jesus in his love trying to warn judas of the destructive path that he knows judas is on it's almost as if you can hear jesus saying behind the the scenes are, are between the lines saying, Judas, listen, I know the sinful course that you're on. I know the destructive path that you're heading down. And Judas, listen, if you're going to do this, honestly, he says in the other accounts, it would have been better for such a man if he had never been born. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, Judas, listen, if you're going to do this and willfully reject me, and it's your choice, but if you willfully reject me, Judas, what you will suffer for all of eternity, you will live for eternity saying, you know what, it would have been better to have never been born and lived than to have lived and rejected Jesus. And can I say this this morning? The same applies today. If you choose to reject Jesus Christ, to betray Jesus, turn away from him, refuse Jesus as Savior and Lord, I tell you one of the things forever and ever and ever and ever in hell you will feel is it would have been better to have never existed. No matter how great you make this life for yourself, than to have lived and betrayed and resisted and turned my back on Jesus. Listen, can I encourage you this morning in love? Don't let your heart, don't let your heart betray Jesus. Don't let your heart turn away from Jesus. It's the worst decision any human being could ever make. Verse 23 is they hear about this betrayal. Look how interesting this ends. It says, then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now, the other accounts tell us that they all start saying, is it I? Is it me, Lord? To me, this is very interesting. They didn't suspect Judas. You notice that? It's not like they looked at Judas and said, yeah, that's probably the guy. It seems Judas was so polished spiritually that they never suspected Judas. He blended in rather well. He quoted scriptures like the rest. He toted his Bible like the rest. Nobody suspected Judas because we can't see what's happening in the heart. But all of these men, interesting, as they heard this, a sense of conviction fell over their hearts and they all realized, oh my goodness, what if it's me? Which shows me something. Despite Judas, the rest of these men were sincerely concerned of their understanding of their own ability to personally fail the Lord. Because they had been with Jesus, and I think this is a very important thing, another lesson, often the closer we are to Jesus and the more we walk with the Lord, one of the byproducts of that is we become more aware of our depravity. We become more conscious of our ability to really fail and to blow it. The closer you walk with Jesus and the more that we're in his presence like these men, they were keenly aware of their own spiritual deficiency and the reality that they could really fail miserably. Notice that being with Jesus did not make them spiritually arrogant. Being with Jesus made them instead very personally humble. 
they recognized the reality of who they were and their capacity to fail spiritually. Like Paul said, Paul the Apostle, Paul said, by the grace of God I am what I am. And but by the grace of God, there go I. I'll be the next candidate falling off the ship, shipwrecking my faith. And what a beautiful thing to see these disciples recognizing they had all failed Jesus, no doubt, before. But you know what? It's that understanding of failure that makes you really appreciate, isn't it? The faithfulness of what Jesus finished for you. When you realize that just like everybody else, you have the ability to blow it royally. Hey, let me share a few concluding thoughts as we wrap up our time this morning. First of all, let me just say this. Jesus understands painful betrayal. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you have experienced a very painful betrayal in your life by someone very close to you. Maybe it was in a marriage. Maybe it was something that happened to you from a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a pastor. And you've been painfully betrayed. And you're struggling, rightly so, to get over that painful betrayal and say, I just don't know how to process this. I don't know how to deal with this. Can I tell you something? There's no one that can help you deal with it better than Jesus. Because he understands what it's like. And he, by his spirit, can give you the grace to heal and to process that painful betrayal. Secondly, take notice that Jesus was not shocked by that betrayal. And let me say this this morning. The Lord is not surprised by the fact that you and I betray him at times. That we fail him. And maybe you're totally, thoroughly disappointed with yourself. I can't believe I did what I did in the past. Or I can't believe I am who I am or what I've become. Or I can't believe what I just did. And you're shocked. You betrayed the Lord so horrendously. Listen, Jesus isn't surprised. When he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, you weren't born and you hadn't even sinned once yet. You're shocked by your sin. I'm shocked by my sin because we think so much of ourselves. When we fail, we go, I, I, already, I knew that was coming. When I was suffering on the cross, I knew that you were going to do that too. And I poured out my blood for all of that. And See, Jesus wants us to know as a bunch of failures, listen, I love you. And I can cleanse any stain and any guilt. Let me take it away from you. You got to believe what I did for you. And you got to appreciate and receive it for yourself as you respond to what he's done for us. Shall we stand? Let's pray. We'll have our musicians come and close out our time. And Lord, we turn our hearts and worship to you. We appreciate what you have done for each and every one of us. And Lord, even as we'd sing a final song, Lord, I pray in that personal way that you would just speak to your disciples and people on the earth. Lord, you don't need anyone because you're alive from the dead. And Lord, you're able right now this morning to walk around this room and to talk to every person's heart, Lord. To tell them the things that you want them to hear. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them by your Spirit and that you let them respond to you and to your love being extended towards their lives that they, Lord, would receive your forgiveness and your fellowship as we worship in this song. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.